Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. And welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So in this podcast, we are featuring GP partner, CEO and founder of Primary Care IT, Dustin Saint. I really, really like this conversation and some of the key takeaways that I took from it was how Dustin shares his view on building organisational culture and investing in knowing when to get help and investing in that help. Dustin shared the journey of primary care IT and the intention in the beginning wasn't to build a business. So it just doesn't have to be perfect. It's okay to build something and then be like, oh, now we need to think about clinical governance. So I think it's really refreshing and nice to hear and also gives us a lot of permission that it's okay to not get everything perfect when we very first start something. Dustin also talks about the nature of making decisions when it comes to primary care networks. And I think a lot of you will resonate with the layers of lions that you will need to compete with to get the yes or no. Dustin also shares his view on NHS leadership at an exec level, probably applies to all levels, and that is making sure we stay close enough to the problem so we don't lose sight. I really loved it. He shares so much more advice. Towards the end, it does get a little bit technical. For those of you that don't work in primary care, we do slip into using some primary care jargon, but this is another fantastic leadership masterclass enjoy and the only thing I ever ask is that you share it. See you in the next episode. Hey Dustin, thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? Yeah, doing well thanks Tara. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, my pleasure. So would you be able to share with our audience a little bit about who you are and what you do? So I'm Dustin Saint. I'm a GP partner in rural Norfolk. So I do that for two days a week. And then I'm also founder of Primary Care IT. So we set up Primary Care IT about five or six years ago to try and share a lot of the stuff that we've been doing in my own practice with other organisations. We were conscious that a lot of practices were having to reinvent the wheel, do all of the same kind of stuff that everybody needed. And we really wanted a way of being able to share that with other practices so that everybody didn't need to reinvent the wheel. And we'd spent more hours than was healthy tinkering about with stuff in our own practice to get it exactly as we wanted. And we've been sharing that quite informally for quite a few years. And then it got to a stage where we thought we've got to formalize this, but probably do it more with a, and we're very much on the social enterprise kind of end of the spectrum in terms of a company. 
So everything we do is primarily based on what's good for patients and then what's good for practices and is going to help them to achieve their targets and make their lives easier. So what do you actually do? Everything and anything to do with optimising care using clinical systems or data in practice. So what we're really talking about there is searches, templates, protocols, data and BI, analytics. We've also got into, we do an online and video consultation platform as well in collaboration with IATRO. So we've kind of moved into that space as well. And then we have our one analytics platform, which is a platform that allows you to see how you're doing with contracts and what your volume of work is looking like, but also has got patient level data and will help you to identify those patients who might be almost hitting the targets, but not quite hitting the targets or those patients who have repeatedly been missed in previous years. So like often people will work to their percentages for things like quaff, but then there'll be a tail of patients where they've just been consistently flying under the radar and not coming in. And actually they've got quite high readings of blood pressure or HbA1 see and our tools kind of pick those patients out and go well here's your risky tail and here's what you want to do about them when you say you got to a point where you were like we need to formalize this and create a business mm. what was that tipping point so you've been sharing your stuff informally for years what that you were sharing that made you think i'm just doing this for free for loads of other people we went to an EMIS conference one year and we'd done a whole load of work on hypertension. So this was like way pre-COVID. It was 2017. And we'd done lots of stuff about empowering patients to do their own home blood pressure monitoring rather than having to come into the practice. And we built a whole protocol around that that empowered patients, gave them a leaflet about managing their own blood pressure and then reporting those readings back into the practice. And again, it was kind of pre-accurate. So it was all paper-based rather than being digital. But we'd rolled that out across 15 odd practices that were really keen, a bit like us, and been able to show that actually it really cut down workload for practices because actually they were saving appointments for all those patients. And there's about 40% of our patients that were enrolled on self-monitoring. And also that their levels of blood pressure were better than they were if they'd have been coming into the practice as well. So twofold benefits, reduced workload for practice and also better care for patients as well. And it was after that that NHS Digital came and found me and kind of said, that's oh, really interesting what you're doing, but some of this looks a bit like a medical device and you're logging into other people's systems and where's your data sharing agreements for that? And have you got all of these processes in place? And what about clinical safety? Who's reviewed all of these systems to make sure that they're clinically safe? And I came back to my practice and chatted to my partner and said, look, if we're going to do this, we've got to do it properly because there's all these yeah. questions that actually I haven't got answers for at this moment in time. And actually it's just my partnership like it could be putting our partnership at risk as nhs digital quite rightly pointed yeah. out to me because actually we were just sharing it for free through my partnership so it was at that stage that we separated it out and yeah. thought time to stop doing that and time to do it in a proper structured way it's quite nice to hear and i think lots of people will resonate you know like you start doing something and you don't know where it's leading to and luckily you had a kind tap on your shoulder with people saying I like what you're doing and have you thought about x y and z and then yeah. you you know that like you did it kind of back to front but it's worked yeah absolutely and I mean I think that's the journey we've been on as a company I think we've been really fortunate to have lots of very kind souls who at various times have tapped us on the shoulder or sort of said oh do you know this person or do you know that person and who just kind of helped us out along the way We've also tried to then be that responsible person who does that for other people as well, because actually we're all trying to, hopefully, we're all trying to do this for the same reasons. We're trying to make life easier for GPs and their teams, and we're trying to make care better for patients. And if those are our two focuses, then we should be trying to do that collaboratively in as many ways as we can.
So do you feel like you're very much part of the primary care health tech community? We've acquired and met a lot of people along the way. That means that we're within that space. I mean, I don't think I'd be big head enough to say that I'm part of that community. I don't think it is. <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of what we do. And we're always really keen and interested to chat to other people who are interested in doing the same kind of stuff that we do. Okay. You're looking um, like so, I'm weird, Tara. <laughs> I don't think it's big headed for you to say. I mean, you're not saying you head it up. No, <laughs> no, far from it. <laughs> I'm not in that space because I'm not health tech, but I do see there is a community and it is nice. And I think going to conferences, I'm trying to think which conference did we meet at? I came to best practice and you were sat at the back of a lecture theatre just getting ready to do a talk. And we hadn't really met uh, before. No. And I just went, oh, hi, how are you? <laughs> and, and kind of, <laughs> we had a brief conversation. You were like, oh, my God, I've got to talk in 10 minutes. I need to get my yeah. sorted out. Here. And I was <laughs> just bumbling around like a bit of an idiot. But then I think we met a bit more formally at a future conference after that. Yeah. And I yeah. invited you for a little to sit down and I quizzed you, didn't I? Questions. Yeah, you asked loads of questions. <laughs> loads of questions. Yeah. <laughs> Which is good. Okay. No, we're here together now. So yeah. what are you guys currently working on and how big is your team? So we've got a team of, I think, 28 in total at the current time. And we're always growing and looking for other people that want to help contribute to the things that we do. So if there's anybody out there who's really keen on clinical systems optimization and looking for a home, then we're always looking for people who are really skilled in that area. Again, as a kind of organization, we've grown from being just me doing it evenings and weekends and one or two keen, enthusiastic folk alongside to now having proper business structures and having a sales team, contracting team, customer relationship management team, development team, and got ourselves a lot more organized in the way that we do things. What role was your first hire? Was a PA for me. Do you still have a PA? Yeah, same person. Oh, yeah. Do you know, we sent her a little coffee voucher. Yeah, yeah, she yeah. was the first person that has come back without being prompted with the information. She's good. She's awesome. That was a best practice that I interviewed her. And I remember being super nervous about it because I was like, I don't know whether we can afford her salary. I really don't know whether we've got enough money to be able to pay her. But I know that I need somebody because it's just getting crazy and I haven't got enough time to be booking appointments and sorting out travel and all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, she was our first hire and she's still with us and she's still my PA and she's still awesome. She just sorts stuff out for me. Do you know what? If I'm going to slightly divert. It's really interesting. You've said if you had a big job that needed to be done, but you weren't sure if you could afford it, but yeah. you went for it anyway. And it's interesting that I suppose you're from an entrepreneur's perspective. But in a primary care network's perspective, I was just thinking of the additional role reimbursement scheme yeah. where GPs and practices do have the money but go, oh, I'm not sure, not sure if I want to spend. Like, what is the difference? Because you sit in Absolutely. both camps, right? Yeah, 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 I do. What would yeah. you say to a fellow GP or clinical director that's sitting on quite a substantive pot of money that are like, oh, I'm not sure, even though I'm really busy, I don't see the value in X, Y, and Z, where... On the other hand, you're like really going to strain. I can do it. I need the help. Get it spent. Money equals bums on seats equals help. We all need help. It's easy to say that when you've got, I mean, I think we're quite lucky at our practice. We've got a really good management infrastructure that allows people like me to just go, just do it. And it all just works because we've got that really good support network and really good management infrastructure. 
where I think you and I can see why you would struggle is if you haven't got that kind of support. So if you haven't got like I know if I go and see my practice manager, Keith, and say to him, look, we need to do this and let's just get on with it and go for it. I know that it's like in really safe hands and that he'll just do it and that I don't need to worry about it and it will just get implemented. And I know that any new hires that we have will get a good induction. They'll get looked after. They'll get integrated into our team. They'll get a mentor because that's all stuff that we just do when we take on new people. Now, if I didn't have all of that and I didn't have that confidence, then I'd probably be more nervous about spending that money because actually if somebody was just to turn up and be a bit lost and be a bit unguided and then not really fit into the ethos or culture of the practice and not really deliver what we needed, then yeah, I mean, they're going to be a burden rather than being a help. Whereas I think we're quite lucky that we've got that. How do you build that trust and confidence in your team? That takes a long time and it's about hiring the right people and also getting rid of the wrong people quickly so that you have that culture and ethos. And I think when I was starting out with primary care IT, my brother-in-law's an accountant and worked at the time for us and young and they used to do, I think, entrepreneur of the year kind of things. And he was involved in the panels and he said one of the things that all of the entrepreneurs there, best bit of advice that he said that they ever gave was hire slow, fire fast. And I think that's really, really, really good advice. I think you really want to get to know the people that are going to work in your organization. And if they're not right, that's not necessarily that they're a bad person. It's not the right fit. They're just not the right fit for your organization or for the role you need them for in your organization. And we regularly, both organizations do things like Belbin and look at different team roles and look at what value they bring and look at where we're lacking in terms of different roles within the team to make sure that we've got a balanced team. You do need to do that to make sure that you've got a kind of happy and cohesive team. It requires a lot of work on an ongoing basis. It's not stuff that you would normally identify as work. It's those little conversations that you're getting in the morning and you spend your first 20 minutes just chatting to folk and saying, how are you? How's things going? What's been going on since I last saw you? And just catching up with folk. And it's that subtle, soft stuff that is really, really important if you're going to build and foster those teams. It's the stuff that's really important, but when you're really busy. That's the first thing that goes. It just goes, doesn't it? Because it's not going to help you see patients. So organisationally set up your structures so that you've got those times. So like our rules are you're in by eight, but patients don't start coming to be seen until 20 past eight. So you've got 20 minutes before you start. 12 o'clock, down tools, everybody goes for coffee. Red line, everybody has to be at coffee at 12 o'clock and we all have coffee for 20 minutes together. And that's a daily thing that anybody who's in the building goes and has coffee and has a chat together. And that just allows you to kind of like, somebody sent you a task that has annoyed you and you just go, look, what was that task about? Why did you send me that? (laughs) (laughs) It just helps to oil those wheels a little bit rather than allowing, because when you're stressed and busy, it's really, really easy to get irritated about stuff. And it's really, really easy to let stuff fester and not meet it head on that's the kind of thing you really want to be building into the structure of how you organize yourself hi everyone this podcast is brought to you in partnership with best practice where we will be interviewing some of the speakers and sponsors attending the event in birmingham on the 11th and 12th of october if you are already registered to attend do let us know as we would love to meet you and if you are still to register your place please click on the link in the show notes Now, let's jump back into this week's episode. What's your dynamic between your practice and your within your PCN? We've got a really good PCN. We've got a really good bunch of guys working within the PCN. We were at PCN long before PCNs were a thing. So we used to meet monthly with the same practices that are in the PCN ever since I've been a partner at the practice. How long is that? 10 years. 
practice. Wow. I was a partner for eight years before that back in Birmingham. So we're quite lucky with our PCN. But I mean, it's like any other PCN. I mean, just getting an agreement amongst a bunch of partners is hard enough. And then you're taking that to, so you've got like five lions who've all got their own opinions and who are all arguing about yeah. what happened. And then you take a considered opinion from your five lions and then you've put that to the next tier and you've got eight groups of five lions all coming together yeah. and all, all trying to come up with a, so, I mean, it's the same as, as anything. There's kind of difficult decisions and difficult paths to negotiate. But yeah, I mean, I'm not CD. One of my partners was, and now we've got a partner from another practice who's really good, who's a good friend of mine, who's a CD and does a really good job of kind of trying to steer that ship. You use lions. It's like herding tigers. It's hard work. Do you find yourself managing conflicts of interest or not really? Is it quite easy to separate when you're GP and when you're working for primary care? Did when I had previous roles. So when I first started doing primary care IT, I was also a commissioner working for the local CCG and then was also then transferred and worked for a provider organization, was our confed lead, and then was the lead for the five provider organizations across the east of England and sat on the STP board. So I had to be really careful about conflicts at that stage, but then things got too busy with primary care IT and I had to park all of those roles. And so then conflicts disappeared because I wasn't doing those roles anymore, but I was quite careful to manage those conflicts in a really transparent way. So I had a bi-monthly meeting with our governance leader, the CCG. We'd get together and I'd just go, look, this is what I'm doing. This is, these are the kind of organizations we're involved with. This is what we're up to currently. I can't see any conflicts or anything. And also make sure I read the papers before I went to any of the meetings. So if there was something that looked like it was going to be a conflict that I just flag it with a chair of that meeting before okay. we got to the agenda item and got out of the room. So what are you guys currently working on? Any big projects? Yeah, we've got quite a few things on the go. So we've got QRIS 3 that we're still beavering away at to get that out with the latest cardiovascular risk calculator in, in our online and video consultation platform, which is dead exciting. We've got a really, really exciting project with some CQC resources that I think will be really, really helpful to practices. So it's a really structured way of kind of looking at what you need from like when CQC come and visit and run searches and see what's going on in your practice. We've basically built a practical way of managing all that work on an ongoing basis. So actually there's various different work that needs to happen. There's like some stuff that's just need to get patients in for blood tests. There's some stuff where you've got to review high risk patients. There's some stuff where you've got to make sure patients are aware of the risks of the medication that they're taking. There's some stuff where you've got to make sure patients are coded properly for the diagnoses they've got. We've basically taken all of that and gone, throw it up in the air and then go, right, who needs to do what? How can we organize it? How can we structure it in a way that's really easy to follow so that the practice can just adopt it? And then how can we build like alerts within the system that just tell you if there's something like that that's kind of outstanding? That's been a really big project over the last six to eight months that we've been working on to get out. So that's probably going to be next four to six weeks. We'll probably have that live. That's really exciting. There's another piece of work you mentioned. Yeah, that was some work that we're really proud of that we did last year. So essentially, we worked with Hillingdon Confed and with the PCNs across Hillingdon. It was with IIF because everybody was just like, we need help and support with IIF last year, right? Because it was just mental. But they were also like, we've also got this really quite complex but valuable locally enhanced service. So Northwest London ICS had put together a PCN based, which is quite forward thinking and still is really scheme that covers diabetes, non-diabetic hyperglycemia and mental health. And so actually there were targets for those 
three areas that you weren't being assessed at as a practice, but as a PCN. And so you had to make sure that all your diabetics had their nine key care processes, that they were hitting their three treatment targets and a whole variety of stuff. But you had to do that at PCN level. And so if you had one practice or two practices that weren't doing that, it could potentially make a big, big impact to the practice income. And so so the Confederation in Hillingdon asked us if we would support practices with delivering that. And so we did what we usually do at primary care IT, which is take the spec, look at it, pull it to pieces and think, how can we make sure that the practices have got the information they need? How can we make sure that they can easily and quickly see which patients they need to target? And how can we make sure that they've got reporting that keeps them up to date with how they're performing and then be able to look and go, well, this practice needs to do this, this practice needs to do that and give them real world numbers like, and oh, we've got 10 patients to hit the target or we've got six patients to hit the target or whatever else. And so we did that over the last year and the results are staggering when you look at their performance as a group of PCNs compared to the rest of the ICB. I can't quite remember the numbers, but it's something like they hit 90% of patients having their diabetic key care processes recorded. The rest of the ICB was about 55, 60%, something like that. So it was staggeringly different. And when you looked at the reporting on the dashboards, you could see there was a sea of ambers, reds, few greens, and then you got to Hillingdon, it was all green. They'd all hit their targets. When looking at the spec, and this is not your job to interrogate it, but is the target meaningful? Yes, yeah. they have done it, but does it make a difference? Did you think this is a really good thing to do? The only reason I say that, because there are other areas of rolling out PCN LESs um, services, and it feels a bit like the Impact and Investment Fund, a bit tick boxy. Yeah, yeah. From your piece of work, did you think this seems really good? Yeah, so when we were evaluating it, we didn't really look at it from that standpoint until it came to the evaluation that we were looking at the impact from our outcomes. And actually, there's really strong evidence to tie hitting three treatment targets for diabetes to actually show that that does reduce hospital admissions, reduces rates of complications and increases healthy years of diabetic life. And I think across that region, we were able to show that based on that data, we would have given diabetics across Hillingdon an additional 600 and something odd healthy years of life. So from that point of view, yeah, it feels really quite meaningful. I mean, there's less data for some of the other outcomes, but there's enough there that's tangible that you think will actually has and will make a real difference to patient care. And of course, I mean, the income that PCNs and then practices also receive for that, which then gives them the ability to invest in more staff to be able to deliver more services for patients is also, I think we totted it up as approaching 350 odd thousand pounds that across four PCN we've managed to increase that on top of the average for the ICB. So it's a really worthwhile piece of work doing. Given all of your experience, when you've got a dashboard, which can clearly see how the groups of organisations are performing and one or two practices aren't performing, how do you approach that? Because it happens in every primary care network, right? Everyone yeah. says they're going to do something. They roughly know their patients, but yeah. for whatever reason, there's always one. How have you managed those situations? They've managed that by having a really good confederation who's able to support practices and make sure that they've got infrastructure to be able to go and address that. I think when I was doing my commissioning role, it was to go and have a word with those people and understand their situation because the majority of the time there was an understandable reason for that situation. And it wasn't that they were bad people or not wanting to do things because they were just awkward or obstinate or lazy. It was just that they had some stuff going on that meant that they just didn't have the headspace for it. Um, and so then it's like, okay, well, if that's the case, well, then what else can be done to try and support them so that there is their headspace to be able to do it? If that's really what we want to be investing the resource in, well, then if they're worried about whether they've got enough doctors to turn up tomorrow and even see a patient. 
then they're not going to be in a headspace where they've got the time to look at like a long-term condition and look at proactively managing somebody's care. They're just not going to be in that headspace. You've got to understand their pressures and their problems and then try and deal with it that way. The Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you proudly in partnership with 10,000 donors and their Gob for Good campaign. Gob for Good is all about getting as many people as possible to join the stem cell registry. Only 3% of the UK are registered to be stem cell donors and only 0.4% of the global population. If you or a loved one have the devastating news that you have been diagnosed with a blood cancer, the chances of you finding your blood stem cell match is significantly reduced if you have a minority ethnic heritage. It is really, really simple. All you need to do is click into the show notes or visit the Gob for Good website at gobforgood.com and get yourself signed up to the registry. You could one day receive that life-saving call or one day you may need that life-saving call. Now, let's jump back into this week's episode. What are your views on the future of the partnership model? (laughs) Thanks for that one. (laughs) (laughs) Just drop that one in. I think we're at an interesting time with general practice at the moment. And I guess my experience of general practice is probably not typical because I'm in rural Norfolk and we're in a really different situation to much of general practice in the UK because of our geography. So we, like most other areas, we're seeing coalescing and, and coming together of practices and much closer joining up of services and joining up of numbers of practices. In our area, that's really quite hard to achieve because of the geography. So my practice covers 100 square miles. Our PCN covers 600 square miles. So the idea that patients will travel across our PCN, they could be in a car for an hour to get from one side of our PCN to another. So my experience of being a GP is very much based on that. When we do all the work with primary care IT, like I see the other side of it and how practices in inner cities and in differing areas. I think that's the challenge with general practices in the partnership model is that you've got so many disparate practices serving different populations with different priorities that we're a really difficult bunch of people to get together and actually all agree on something and all be really clear about what it is that's needed to solve all of our problems because we've all got different problems depending on our unique circumstances. And I think overarchingly, there's not been enough investment in primary care. And because of that, partnerships are struggling to recruit and retain people because it's not especially attractive to become a GP partner at the moment because you've got to pay a load of money before you even start work. And when you've got an uncertain job situation, that's quite a big ask. And then the workload, if you are a partner, is quite significant. And if income has been eroded over time and you can go and work elsewhere in the world for more, which in our last cohort of GP trainees, I think we've got one that stayed within region and the rest of them all left and went abroad. So I think we've got to change the narrative a little bit. Like we need to make general practice attractive again. Part of that is money. It has to be. But part of it is also people not having a go at general practice all of the time and being down on general practice all of the time. I think there's a real post-COVID attack on general practice by the press, which has left a lot of GPs feeling really, really bruised and really, really battered. And I think we need to change that narrative and get positivity back into general practice because it's a great job, really great job. I still love going to practice and seeing patients. It's still a really, really rewarding job. 
but we've just got to probably let the dust settle from COVID a little bit, but it needs more investment and it needs some positivity and it needs some really good leaders at national level to try and drive that agenda. Do you think we have got good leaders at national level? Yes and no. We've got some really, really good leaders and people like Partha Carr, just awesome, says what he thinks, isn't afraid to say what he thinks and is a force for good. And we've got a lot of people who've been leaders for a long time. And I was always conscious when I was at the CCG, the longer that you're in that environment and you're becoming native with that environment, probably the less that you're going to be representing who you should be representing. I always was questioning myself thinking, is this what Dustin sat at the GP desk would be thinking? Or is this what Dustin, who's been surrounded by the CCG mechanisms for the last two, three years, is thinking? And always tried to revert to type. So I think part of being a good leader is making sure that you've still got feet on the ground in the organisations that you're representing and making sure that you're still authentic and that you still represent those grassroots views. I wouldn't want to do it. No, it's a tough job. <laughs> and I take my hats off to those people who do, because I think it's a really, really hard job and you don't get a lot of thanks for it. And you get a lot of people criticising what you do. But I think we have to have that kind of strong leadership. I was pleased to see the recent GPC elections. I think uh, some really positive choices for the good. Hopefully we'll see some changes. If I was a practice or PCN struggling with my searches or feeling like things could be better, things could be mm. more efficient, things could be mm. more profitable... Why would I reach out to primary care IT? What can you guys offer me? We can help. That's what we do. That's everything that we do. And we've got the headspace to be able to do it without you having to have the headspace to do it. Our team spend all of our time looking at those things, understanding them, putting them to pieces and figuring out what needs to happen so that you don't need to. And that's where if you're finding it really hard going and you haven't got the time and the headspace to be able to do it yourself, invest in somebody else who has. In terms of the returns we've shown across places like Northwest London, that's at least a fivefold investment in terms of the cost versus what we're then able to deliver, which then gives you the ability to have some more headspace because you could actually fund other people to come and help out with the work. Is it off the shelf or is it bespoke? Depends. We've got a load of different products that enables you to have some stuff that's just off the shelf. So national contract stuff, there's yeah. like you can buy national contract stuff off the shelf. It is what it is. It does what it says on the tin. And then there's our tool sets, which includes the localization element, or you can purchase the localization for your locally enhanced services separately. And that's really bespoke and really kind of tailored to your particular needs and your particular schemes that you've got locally. So we've got a variety of different packages and subscription packages or just product standalone packages, depending on what you need. So we've, we've very much checked that up in the air over the last 12 months. What we did initially when we first started was I was just a big advocate. We'll chuck everything into just one package. People will just give us one sum of money and then they can just have everything. And that worked really okay for a while. But then you realize that actually some people only want a bit of it and then don't see the value in all the rest of it. And then some people do utilize all of it and see loads of value in it. But actually, some people do just want like the PCN Des stuff. Some people do just want cost stuff. Some people just want the stuff that are locally enhanced services. So we've tried to break up those packages so that you have all those different options. And equally at ICB level, if you're purchasing at that kind of level, we've also then got a whole load of bolt-on support around managing your practices and helping to support your practices. So, I mean, that's something else we're really, really proud of over the last few months with all the CQRS submissions for IAF for last year that's just been a complete and utter muddle. The ICB regions that we support, we've been able to support them by going into practices, helping the practices, because the practices have been saying, well, hang on, we've done this work, but actually the CQRS data is not showing what we've done. 
and it's really difficult and complex because you can't actually figure out what's going unless you know how to interrogate a CQRS extract and reference that to a search. And who in general practice is going to know how to do that? Because it's only gigs like us who've got the headspace to spend their time doing that kind of stuff. But we've been able to support our ICB regions by saying, well, actually, practices are right. Actually, they have done the work and the searches are showing that. And actually, the extracts have just failed in this instance, or this is what's happened. And been able to give the ICB regions an understanding of what's happening properly on the ground with their practices that's allowed them to then take a really measured and sensible approach in how they handle that with their practices which I think it's the one thing as a commissioner, when we used to have a CSU, it's the one thing that I would have really liked to have seen that we didn't have at the time was that narrative between what's going on in the practices. Yeah. Commissioners being able to be sure that what they were hearing from the practices had been validated. And that's what we've been able to do. Why is there that disconnect sometimes between CQRS? Because it should be, I mean, everything should be CMS. <laughs> yep. Yep. Never worked like that, though. <laughs> should be seamless. It should be the same, shouldn't it? Because should be. they're all talking not. to each other. Yeah, but it's not. So there's loads and loads of technical reasons why. So you've always got movement of patients because you've got some patients coming, some patients leaving. And the way that CQRS handle patient registrations is completely different to how the clinical system searches handle patient registrations. So those two things are never going to marry up. So you're always going to have the odd one or two patients who are slightly different. For CQRS for IIF for last year, there were also some fairly complex problems. In some instances in the IIF, because the business rules, the numerator could be greater than the denominator. So you could actually have more patients achieving the indicator than were, they were eligible for it. But just because of the way that somebody had written the business rules, okay. if that happens, CQRS just falls over and returns a zero. And there also seems to be some issues with individual certain practices CQRS just seems to fail for. We've identified a number of practices in PCN regions where all of the PCN data looks fine. And then you look at just one practice and they got zero for absolutely everything. And you're like, well, they clearly have not got zero for absolutely everything. Yeah. And it's just that the extract for that one particular practice has failed. But again, how familiar and how regularly are people of fait with looking at a brand new set of CQRS extracts that nobody's ever seen before and then interrogating those and then looking at their own practice? A lot of people haven't got those skill sets. And again, that's where we've been able to come along and go, well, actually, okay, we can see what's happened here and this is what's happened. And actually, if CQRS has failed, well, actually, here's what the data should look like roughly and then been able to go back to the commissioners about that. I know that part of the conversation was very, very specific, but I know lots of primary care network managers will be nodding along like, oh, okay, right, get it. This is why. If people want to reach out to you, what's the best way to contact you? So drop me an email, dustin at dustyn at primarycareit.co.uk or go to our website www.primarycareit.co.uk and there's a contact us or all sorts of different ways that you can get in contact with us there or phone us at the office on the website, the phone number's there. So give us a shout. And hopefully I will see you at best practice. Very much so. We're looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dara. so much for joining us if you like what you hear i would absolutely love it if you left us an itunes rating and five star review 
I know many of you give us a shout out on social media, which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast. So please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care, on Instagram and on LinkedIn. Just look for Tara Humphrey. And if you're not subscribed to our newsletter, please do. You get to hear more insights, more confessions, some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week. So click on join the newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode. Thank <laughs> you.